Welcome to Marla by the Numbers, Season 1 of the podcast series from the International Association of Fairs and Expositions. I'm Marla Calico, President and CEO of the IAFE, and I'll be your host for this 2020 series. Today, my special guest is Dr. Francois Booker-Drew, the Vice President of Community Affairs and Strategic Alliances at the State Fair of Texas. Listen in to our conversation. Welcome, everyone. I tell you what, this is going to be a great session today. As you've already heard, we're going to have Dr. Francois Booker-Drew with us today. She is an author. She's a speaker, a professor, a trainer. I, I know I sound like a fangirl, but we are so glad she's in the, the, the fair industry. She is the VP of Community Fairs and Strategic Alliances for State Fair of Texas. Now, Francois, before we find out how you came to be in the fair industry, tell us a little bit more about your background, the type of experience how you grew up? So I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, which most people probably don't know where that is, but it is close to the border of Texas. It is about 30 minutes from Marshall, Texas, and um, grew up with an amazing family that, although had its dysfunction, loved me. And I moved from there to Texas to go to college and have been here ever since. Except for a little bit, I moved to Oklahoma City and went to school out there, but um, have been in the nonprofit world for far too long and um, ended up in an amazing position and opportunity with the State Fair of Texas. Well, that is great. And now you've been there, what, three years on the team? Four years. It will be five in April. I can't believe it. Oh my, it's great. Well, I know that uh, several of our listeners and our members have had a chance to hear you speak at our IFE convention before, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about what your uh, role there with the State Fair, what do you do? So when I started in 2016, we really did not have a department that focused on community affairs. We had been doing the scholarship program for a number of years and that was growing and thriving. And when I started the first day of work, we started the Big Tex Urban Farm. I remember thinking that first day, oh, God, if I'm going to be out here planning all the time, this may not have been the best decision. <laughs> and so um, it was just amazing to see even how that has grown. And so what I really did was come in and listen to the community. We were um, in the midst of the park that we're located in um, being turned over from the city of Dallas to a public par uh, private partnership. And while all of that was going on, it was just a lot of intense attention on the State Fair of Texas. And so for me, it was coming in, listening to the community, even though I've worked there um, for a number of years in different capacities and my church is there. Um, I didn't want to take for granted that I knew what people needed. And so I spent the first several months just going around listening to stakeholders in the community and finding out what it was that they needed from the State Fair of Texas. And I wanted to make sure that we could be a better neighbor and a better partner. And so there were three things that just kept resonating as I went around the community. It was education and our local schools and how do we support them in addition to our scholarship program. But then the other area that I heard a lot about was um, our nonprofits. They didn't have the support and resources that they need. So how do we help build their capacity? And then the other thing that came up was the state fair is this huge economic engine in the community. So how do we use that and leverage our resources, our vendors, our sponsors, and, you know, concessionaires, everyone? How do we leverage that to really begin to drive economic development in an area that really has been neglected and um, hasn't necessarily had the attention from 
the city of Dallas and, you know, some of our corporate um, relationships. And so um, I, I really developed our work based on those three areas and looking at how do we use our philanthropy in addition to, you know, giving money, but how do we create signature programs and community initiatives and the supporting things that help our um, neighbors, but how do we also become better advocates for issues in our community? And so that's really the, the framework that we've developed. I had to recognize not only what existed in our community, but also had to map the assets that were at the fair. I mean, we have people with amazing relationships who are very brilliant in their own expertise and work. Um, and then, you know, our financial resources, how do we take those three things and begin to use that to help change our community? Yeah, and that's great. And and I know of a couple of programs that you do. Uh, you mentioned the urban farm. I'd like to talk about that. But you also do um, you do with the not profit the not for profit infrastructure initiative. Tell me a little yes. bit more about what is that and how is that helping your community. So um, before I came to the state fair, I worked at World Vision, and I had been working with a number of nonprofits in our community. And when I was transitioning to the fair, United Way really wanted to create a program that helped build the capacity of nonprofits. And I've been working with the University of North Texas at Dallas on doing this. And so United Way became a partner. And what we started to do was uh, build this cohort program where we took um, 10 nonprofits. And the first year we had about 35, 36 nonprofits apply. We were able to select 10. And it's a program that we bring in speakers that talk about board governance. Um, issues like asset mapping, fundraising, you know, various issues that nonprofits all grapple with. And we had financial investment to these organizations. They could pitch for up to $10,000 um, for a capacity building project because we know funders typically don't fund audits. They don't fund consultants. And so we knew for these smaller to mid-sized grassroots nonprofits, um, they didn't have access to those resources. And so the program was really not only about the educational piece, it was about the collective learning that they could get from each other and the relationships that they build. But in addition to that, we were leveraging relationships on behalf of them. So a lot of our nonprofits that went through that program ended up getting funding from, you know, very large um, funders in our community. And the goal was really to help them build their infrastructure because we knew that if they were stronger, our communities would be stronger. And so the program is, uh, this was year four of the program. And this past year, we took a group of nonprofits that focused on the reentry space. And what's so crazy is that the program ended earlier this summer and they were like, no, we got to keep meeting. So I've been meeting with them once a month just to check in and hire me our CFO at the State Fair came in and did a workshop on budgeting on Monday with them. And so it's just been neat to see their hunger and in the midst of COVID, their desire for connection. Mm -hmm. And so we're just continuing to do that program moving forward. We won't do the cohort model. We're going to begin to start doing a series of workshops that we bring in different folks from around the community to talk about risk management. Why do you need director and officer's insurance, crisis communication? And we're going to do a series every month for nonprofits where we're not just focused on 10, but we're going to do a larger audience. And another foundation has come in and said they want to support it. So we're excited about what these relationships can really do and how we leverage them to help our, our neighbors. 
Good, good. That's that is fantastic. Now we will get to the five things here in just a second, I promise. <laughs> but I think the story of your uh, big techs and the urban farm and helping urban gardeners to me, that is just one of the best stories around. So can you tell us a little bit about that program? Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Drew and his team are so committed. Even when COVID started, Drew and his team have not stopped farming. So they've gone in from just doing the pallets that we had when I first started. It was, you know, um, several hundred pallets of fruits and vegetables. And like I mentioned, I was thinking, I hope this isn't my job that I'm going to be doing this all the time because I'm going to kill everything. And they are so amazing. And so to see how many pounds of produce that they give out and now everything is actually in the greenhouse. And so they've been doing the um, hydroponics and Mm -hmm. to be able to do about 100 heads of lettuce a week is just remarkable. And we are centered in a food desert. Mm -hmm. And um, there are not a lot of grocery stores. Our community really doesn't have access to healthy food. And so for Drew and his team to have this program that we're not just growing it and keeping it, we're giving it to our nonprofit partners. So there's an organization called TR Hoover that feeds in the community several times a week. And they're in an area that does not have stores. They have convenience stores. So to see groups like that benefit from this work where we're doing tens of thousands of pounds of food, you know, within a year, um, actually in months, it's just phenomenal what they've been able to do. And it's things like not just lettuce, it's peas and peppers. And he was doing grapes at one time. And I was like, okay, what else are we going to do with those grapes? <laughs> you know, so, so it's just a, a really wonderful way that the State Fair noticed a problem in our community. And instead of just going, well, it's there, you're looking at our own resources and assets and using that to begin to help solve for, we know that that's not going to end the food desert, but it's our contribution to saying that we understand this and this is our way of trying to help our neighbors have access. Well, I, I think it is just a phenomenal story. I've, I've been there. I've been in the surroundings of the Fair Park and, and understand how very important this meets a, this meets a critical need in your community. Yes. So that's great. Yes. So, you know, as you know, and you've gotten to know a little bit about the fair industry, every single fair is unique. And, and we always have to remember that even though our annual event may have the same components, the community we serve, the elements that we have, it's, it's very much must represent that own community. And we have to engage that community. So one of the things that you're an expert in is how we engage the community, how we work with the community. And so top five ideas that you could share with any fair across the country. What, what would those top five things be? You know, the, the first one is to listen. I think the challenge that many of us have is we think we know our communities. Even if you're from that area, there are things that you just may have blind spots about. We all do. And so how do you make sure that you're going in open and being okay with being criticized? Because I know when I first started, I think I mentioned this to you, um, a friend of mine I'd known for years was in a prominent position and she just went off on me. And I remember looking and going, okay, you've only got so many more minutes to do this. We're friends, but okay. And so once she finished, she said, um, you know, I just had to get that off. And I asked her, I said, well, why? why are you doing this now? She said, I never really had anyone to talk to that was accessible because she didn't have a relationship. 
And so I think it's important for us to listen and be okay with criticism and critiques of our work and use that not so much, you know, viewing it as a threat, but use that as an opportunity to create the change that you want. You know, the second thing for me is, you know, learn about the communities that you're in, the historical and cultural challenges that those communities have. We often don't recognize that our communities have had so much trauma, especially with fairs that are located in communities that, you know, um, are people of color and marginalized areas. Those communities suffer so much trauma. And for many of us, we go in and then drive out to our neighborhood. And so we don't really get to see, you know, a whole lot of what goes on. Understand that. And I know for me at the state fair, I'm very clear, and we all are, that the fair was not always on the right side of history. And that the fairgrounds was a place where, you know, there were Klan rallies long before all of us were born, but there's still impacts from those decisions that happened. So it's unfair for us to say, oh, that happened so long ago. Yes, but you're not being directly impacted. And so we have to recognize our own privilege when we are in these communities and recognizing that our privilege can be a blind spot, but how we use our privilege to then open up doors and help those who may not have the same availability to possibility. The other one is know your assets in your community. There is a theory called asset-based community development that was started by um, two professors called um, McKnight and Kretzman. And they're at DePaul University now, but they basically said that in every community, it doesn't matter how poor destitute it is, there are these assets. And they talk about their institutions, their associations that People are assets, even if they're disabled or elderly or young or have been formerly incarcerated. All of these people have talents and gifts that we can tap into. And they also talk about um, associations and the open space. And all of those are assets. If we go into poor communities and you see, you know, a whole lot of, of blight and there are open fields, those are resources where you can begin to use them to do, you know, not so much in COVID, but you could do events before where you could do picnics and bring communities together. So all those resources are ways that we can begin to, you know, find out what's there so that we're not reinventing the wheel. But secondly, we can determine where there are gaps and then how do we use our fares to fill those gaps now that we know what's available in our community. The fourth thing that I would say is recognize your own internal assets. As much as you look at what's externally there and what may need to be um, in a community. It's also important to know what you have as an institution. So looking at your personnel, there's expertise that exists within every person that works there. It's looking at, you know, if you've got a bunch of cups, are those things that you could give out to an after school program? So recognizing your inventory, not only, you know, the stuff, but the people and your sponsors and vendors, those are resources that you can also offer to your communities. And then the last thing is trust. I, I don't think we recognize that trust is the glue to social capital, which is about building networks, relationships, associations. And if there's no trust, it's going to be difficult to make things move. One of the things that I often tell nonprofits is there's a difference between agreement and compliance. Agreement, I, I can sit there and, and believe that people are agreeing and they're not. They may be complying because as an institution, I have a whole lot of power. So they're going to nod their head and agree with anything I say because I have power, whether that's money or relationships or whatever. And so don't confuse in communities that when it seems that people agree, they're not. 
quite often it's compliance. And for those of us who are trying to build relationships and communities, we have to know the difference between the two. And the way we move beyond the compliance to actually have an agreement is trust. It takes so long to build trust. It's not easy. It requires consistency and showing up even when you don't want to. But this is the thing. As long as it takes to build it, it can take 10 seconds to destroy it. And so when we're in community, we have to be very mindful about um, what it takes and being committed to, to sticking it out even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And those those are all great. I, the the uh, recognizing the assets that you have. I've seen that in some fairs during the COVID time where, for example, they have expertise in managing crowds and traffic flow. Right. Uh, assets that they have like uh, bicycle barricades or traffic yes. cones to help a COVID testing site. So yes. I think we just need to think about how we can do that in everyday relationships as well. Yes. And, and I always love when you start off with listening, um, maybe as we drill down on listening just a little bit, what's your number one tip to help people understand how to listen? Well, I think it's recognizing I statements versus you statements. And sometimes when we are listening to people, one, we automatically want to respond because we want to be right. And so when we're in conversation, we've got to let our guard down. It, it's not about us. It is really about centering the community and recognizing that these are the folks who support you. These are the people that even if they're not coming to your fair can badmouth you. And that goes a whole lot farther on social media than anything you could do. So being aware of how do you make sure that in your communication um, that you are saying how you feel and taking ownership for you and not necessarily being on the attack and talking about what they're not doing or what they should do or you should do. So I think it's being very mindful of our communication. Um, and I think it's, it's being uh, okay with being in proximity to people. I think part of listening is the relationship and we have to be in proximity to people and let folks know that we're there and we're open and always let people know you don't have all the answers. I don't. But when people know that you're coming in open and you're saying, listen, I'll do what I can. I'm a firm believer that you should always under promise and over deliver. So you say, hey, I can do this. We'll see what happens. And then you blow their mind when you go above and beyond. But so often what we do in communities, and that's why people get so disappointed and don't trust, is we promise all these things and then we don't follow through. We're not consistent. And so relationship requires consistency. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, those are five great things. Listen, and we need to do that in every aspect of our life, in every relationship. Uh, learning the historical and cultural context of our fair and the community that we're in. Uh, looking at asset-based community development, uh, recognizing the assets that we have and utilizing them, and then always relationships. I love that book in listening and relationships. Those are just elemental to everything we do. And we just need yes. to remember more every day about how to do that. Right. Well, right. listen, Francois, thank you. Uh, it has been a pleasure as always. We enjoy you. Uh, just having a conversation is fabulous. But for the fair industry, thank you for always being willing to share your expertise. We appreciate it very much. I'm glad to do it. If there's any way that I can help, um, folks do this work so that all of our communities are not just surviving, but thriving. Reach out. 
Join me next time for episode number eight, when I will have a conversation with Joe Reynolds, CFE, the general manager of the Warren County Fair in Iowa, and who has just concluded her term as the IAFE's Zone 5 director. We'll be talking about the top five things for making the most of your IAFE membership. Thanks for joining me for Marla by the Numbers. To find out more about the IAFE and our members, please go to our website, www.fairsandexpos.com, or visit our Facebook page, IAFE The Network.